0: Hi, this is Jim Benick, and welcome to Nostrum. Last week, we ventured into some territory that once again reminds me how old some of this material is, and I was talking it over with the Nostrumite over the weekend. Two things. If you read the PDF, as compared to listening to me say it, when we talked about Griot, Goldbaum, scores, and the SATs, when I read it, Perfect scores, I said. But if you read it in the PDF, it said he got 800s. He got a perfect score of 1,600 on his SATs. Brings you back, doesn't it? The other thing that won't be quite so clear was Griot trying to break the schematics. Once upon a time, not that long ago, when the basic software we use the TRPC software, and this, is, I guess it was back when it was on the Macintosh and actually written for the Macintosh. This software, when it printed the schematics, actually printed them in order of rank by bracket. So you would look at the very top, and at the very top of the schematic, the person whose name was at the very top was undefeated. and you worked your way down to about halfway. And about halfway down, it started again. So another person would be undefeated halfway down. And you can see this throughout the schematics. So you would look for your own name in the placement of the schematics to figure out how you were doing. And you could always tell where that break was because it wasn't exactly halfway through. Sometimes it would be a little above or a little below the fold, so to speak. But you would know that so-and-so obviously wasn't 04 at this point. And, or that someone else obviously wasn't 4.0, and then you could find the break there. And literally, somebody would find that point, fold the schematic, and say, okay, this is how everybody is doing. They might not have been as good at it at, as Grio but they were pretty good at it. And over time, we all figured out ways, and the software figured out ways, of not demonstrating how well someone was doing through the software. Is that a good thing? Eh, draw your own conclusions. There's still plenty of people who spend a lot of time at tournaments trying to decide how everybody is doing, not only at this tournament, but at every other tournament taking place at the same time in the universe that weekend. Be that as it may, welcome again to Nostrum, the Debate Soap Opera. Where deontology is more than just an idea, it's a rebuttal by Jules O'Shaughnessy and the Nostromite, narrated by Jim Menick. Episode 8, Reservoir Hot Dogs. Had Fleece walks down the hall feeling the sense of confidence that usually starts kicking in for him on the second day of a tournament. According to Grio Goldberg, Had is undefeated in his first four rounds, which means that he is guaranteed to advance to the Elimination Rounds this afternoon. And Had Fleece is used to advancing to the Elimination Rounds. He is a senior, the captain of the Toulouse-Lautrec team, and he can't remember the last time he participated in a tournament without taking home at least an octafinal trophy. For Had Fleece, that's just the way it is. He's used to it, and he expects it. But Had is neither conceited nor pompous about his debating success, any more than he is conceited or pompous about his classical good looks, or his consistent high honor roll average, or his perfect SATs achieved in his junior year. Had doesn't even think about these things. In his own estimation, he is merely another schmuck trying to get through the day, but he's had a few lucky breaks. His lack of conceit and pomposity have made him the most popular boy in his class, another fact about which he is neither conceited nor pompous. In debate, he works hard and he does well, which results he thinks are only to be expected. Rank has its privileges, but the rarest of those privileges and the most desirable is the ignorance of rank. At this point, Had's mind is on the probable scenario of the afternoon's elimination rounds. Each one is sudden death in front of a panel of three judges. After this many years, Had expects the usual suspects to break to a limbs, although there are always a couple of jokers in the pack who come out of nowhere and occasionally take home first place. Those jokers are too unpredictable to worry about, so Had concentrates on those usual suspects, the masters of the debate universe, as Tom Wolfe might refer to them. First, there's Had himself. That goes without saying. Second, Grio Goldberg. Grio, had things, is the smartest person to ever tread the debate boards. Griot's intellect is swift and intuitive, always finding the core of any question. But he also possesses a mental filing cabinet of factual information that is inevitably impeccably accurate. Not only does he seem to know everything, he knows how to put his finger on where it's hiding in his brain, and he is able to instantly retrieve it. And if that isn't bad enough, Griot is something of a mystic, perhaps connected to a greater entity than Had is capable of recognizing. Third, Chesney Nutmilk. Chesney's not debating today, and there had been the rumor that he was dropping out altogether, but Had has seen him haunting the corners of the high school, pulled in his mother's considerable wake. If Chesney were to rejoin the circuit, the world of debate would be a harder place, unless the mother factor had something to do with it. The mother factor. Don't say that aloud too quickly. Fourth, Kalima Millak from Manhattan Lodestone. Toughest girl on the circuit, both in debating ability and life experience. She commuted over two hours on a variety of buses, subways, and Conestoga wagons to get to her school every day from a foster home at the furthest reaches of Staten Island. Rumor had it that she was armed at all times, and there was no question that she was dangerous. Manhattan Lodestone might have a reputation as a milk-toast academy, but students like Kalima, who fought for their lives to get in, belied the school's pocket-protector image. If any doubt were held about the depth of her visceral reserves, they were removed at the sight of the apparently human ear she always wore as a necklace. Fifth, and finally, at least among seniors, is Chip Dwindle. Representing Farnsworth Catholic, also in Manhattan, Chip, his real baptismal name, is the strongest of a brigade of all-male Farnsworth zealots who share a reputation as the fastest speakers in the Northeast. The Farnsworthians always dress similarly in blazers and chinos, a recognizable uniform of exception in the otherwise uniform debate sea of inclusion of dark gray and blue suits. To a degree, they are interchangeable cogs, and their schools attack on forensics, always running the same cases at blazing speed, leaving nothing behind but a whiff of incense and a hint of irony. They are Catholic to the core. The opponent Had will be facing now is unknown to him, from a school that only occasionally participates on his circuit. The schematic only tells him the school's name and initials of the debater, Myrtle DD. On the same schematic, HAD is referred to as Toulouse HF. But if HAD is 4-0, and there is no reason not to believe Grio's reading of the schematic, then Myrtle DD is 4.02. In a five-round tournament, the pairings are high-low within brackets, which means that both debaters have the same records. But the computer pairs them with the highest speaker points, debating the lowest speaker points within the bracket, the second highest debating the second lowest, and so forth down to the middle, which is known as power protection. In theory, a tournament wants to pair the best two debaters in the final elimination round. While the first two pre-elimination rounds are paired randomly, subsequent pairings attempt to protect the best debaters from eliminating each other early on. While this may appear marginally unfair, it must be understood that the assignment of speaker points, for which there is no rule and no agreement, is so arbitrary that fairness does usually prevail. As a matter of fact, often the assignments of win and losses are entirely arbitrary, which brings us to the issue we've been avoiding so far, the judge. The judge assigned to his round on Had Fleece's schematic is unknown to him which in itself is a bad sign. There are a few judges who appear regularly, either coaches or former debaters, and they generally have a clue about what they're doing, even if Had doesn't always agree with them. Additionally, there are some parents that travel with their signs on a semi-regular basis, and while their decisions are less credible, they tend at least to be predictable. And theoretically, they improve with each tournament as they learn more about what debate is all about. Had can adjust his style to any of those judges. But an unknown maverick can be anything. A parent judging for the first time, a bus driver, the phys ed teacher roped in by the coach out of sheer desperation. No training is required for judges, and little is given. Yet they are expected to follow 45 minutes of serious argumentation over arcane philosophical issues and not only assign a winner and a loser, but assign the all-important speaker points to each. And to make matters worse, the speaker points range from 0 to 30. Except everyone except mavericks know that they really range from 20 to 30, except on those occasions when they range from 1 to 50, when therefore some people think they range from 40 to 50, while others think they range from 35 to 50, except mavericks who think they range from 1 to 50, with in mathematical language means don't even think about it. The speaker point scale is always printed on the ballot, and at least the theoretical longer point scale. What the judge makes of this is, well, up to the judge. Had reaches his room and enters. His opponent is already there sitting at a desk and prepping her case. She has written her name on the blackboard. AF Myrtle D D Delia Demanda. Had nods at her in greeting and writes his own name next to hers. Neg Toulouse H F Had Fleece. Then he sits down to prep his case a moment later the door swings open with a crash and the judge appears in the doorway it is not a pretty sight is this room 27 he asks the number 27 is about the size of a groundhog on the door he has just banged open yes had responds <sighs> good the judge waddles into the room as best he can given his job of the hut girth He is one of the largest human beings Had has ever seen, and certainly the largest one actually moving. He grunts and breathes loudly with each step until he reaches the back of the room, where he sighs deeply before attempting to squeeze himself into a student's desk, in which the chair and the desk are of one piece, and that piece not designed for huts. With some crackling and tinkling and further grunting, all of which goes on behind Had's and Delia's backs as they are both sitting facing the front of the room, there is eventually a subsidence of activity. Had and Delia exchange glances, acknowledging that they are both ready to begin, and Delia stands. Judge ready, she asks. What? Ready? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Whatever. His voice is breathy, Reflecting the weight of his existence, even sitting at rest, is exhausting to him. Delia begins reading her case, starting with a quotation, the usual beginning. Had sits at his desk with a yellow pad before him, and as soon as the quote is finished, he begins noting everything she says. Her value premise, her definitions, her observations, her contentions, her subpoints, her analysis— the game is won or lost on his knowing exactly what she has said and responding to it effectively. Delia is not a dangerously fast speaker, but she moves at a decent clip and Hadd's pilot pen is scratching across the page continually. Which, as he sees out of the corner of his eye, is more than the judge is doing. The hut is half looking at Delia, half looking over her head. Once or twice, his eyes close completely. He has no pad in front of him, and his sausagey fingers do not appear capable of holding a pen anyhow. He gives Delia no time signals, despite the fact that every piece of a debate needs to be strictly limited. But Delia continues, unaffected by this presence in the rear of the room. Had has to admit that she's a decent debater at least in terms of her case and presentation, although the real test is yet to come when she is finished. Had jumps up for his three minutes of cross-examination. The two of them face the judge, and Had questions her on her case, exploring the weaknesses, preparing for his own case. The judge seems totally uninterested. When the three minutes seem to have elapsed, Had and Delia both sit down, and Had takes a few minutes of his allotted preparation time to get ready for his case. The only redeeming factor in having a judge this uninvolved is that at least this is not a crucial round. If the two debaters are both 4-0, they will both advance to the elimination rounds despite who wins here. But that doesn't mean that either of them will let up. They both continue along, doing their best, trying to track their own timings, debating merely for the pleasure of debating, since the results will be at best unpredictable. Had does his negative speech and starts refuting the affirmative. There's another cross examination with Delia asking Had questions this time. Then Delia rebuts, then Had rebuts, then Delia has a final short rebuttal, and it's over. Good round, Delia says, extending her hand to Had. "'Good round,' he agrees. "'They shake hands in the ritual that is always repeated at the end of a round, "'good or bad, interesting or indifferent. "'Thank you for judging,' Delia says in the direction of the hut. "'Thanks for judging,' had echoes. "'The judge looks at them with a mystified expression. "Uh, uh, uh, "'Thanks for debating,' he finally says. "'As the two debaters collect their things, he finds his ballad and a pen "'and scribbles a few words, which are finished before they leave the room.' As they exit, the second flight enters. Whew, Delia says when the doors close behind them. He didn't flow a word, not one word. I thought he was asleep half the time, Had says. So, where's Myrtle, he asks. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I've never debated anyone from South Carolina. You don't sound Southern. Is that good or bad? (laughs) Well, neither, just a comment. I know how you Yankees are about Southerners, she says with a smile. I had... Cartier Diamond appears out of nowhere to stand right in front of him. Oh, hello, Had says. See you later, Delia says, continuing down the hallway. Good round, Cartier asks. Okay, Had says. I thought I'd come and look for you to see if you wanted to go to lunch. I've got my car here so we don't have to eat in the cafeteria. Had hesitates. Well, I, I was sort of thinking I'd wait for Jasmine. She's in the second flight. Cartier sniffs. <laughs> "'Jasmine? She'll probably have lunch with her boyfriend.' "'Her boyfriend?' "'Sure, her boyfriend. You saw him. Hamlet Buglaroni, Buglaroni. But he's only a novice.' "'There's no accountant for taste, hat. "'Come on, let's go out. We have at least an hour. We can get something decent.' "'I don't know.' She takes his hand. "'Come on.' She starts pulling him down the hallway.' and Hadd is not the first male to succumb to Cartier Diamond without a fight. Will Hadd Fleece change his mind and keep his date with Jasmine Maru? Are Jasmine and Hamlet secret lovers? Will the Hut Judge appear in an electronically enhanced version of Star Wars? Will the Swallows be returning to Capistrano this year? Are the stars out tonight? I don't know if it's cloudy or bright. Find out in our next installment. Crab cakes, we hardly knew ye.